to another episode of the Sawdust and Fire podcast. We are your host. I am Hunter Johnson. And I'm Thomas Baldridge. Well, Thomas, we had some pretty good burns the last couple of days, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, finally. What did we end up burning on your place? About 100 acres or so? I, I'm going to guess 80. 80, okay. Yeah, I went and looked at it again when it quit raining this morning. And uh, we got, in some areas, we got a, a an amazing burn. And in other areas, we got, you know, a really good, what I consider a really good burn. And then that far east side, it it didn't, you know, it, that some of that had never been burned before. So that leaf layers and duff in there was a lot thicker. And it, it didn't go as good, but I mean, that's like, it, I'm just glad that it burned. Well, we got some of those fields hot. I know that. Oh, dude. oh uh, Aaron went up and looked at uh, the hill farm yesterday, and uh, he said we got some really nice burns, especially where we was able to light at the bottom of the ridge and run that fire up the hill. Yeah. Uh, I think we've uh, I think we've scorched some mid-story stuff and and maybe thin some of that out of there. Good. Well, here's the other thing. When me and you were coming out, I didn't even ask you about this, but you say you saw that group of Jakes, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and then this morning when I went to check it, I ran a another group. Maybe I don't think it was the same group, could have been, but I ran another group out of that South Burn unit where that grazing native warm season grasses and stuff were before we torched them ran them out of there this morning so man that's almost, awesome yeah it's almost like ringing the dinner bell for them turkeys oh yeah we we were lighting the other day we ran two long beards out so yeah uh, that's uh makes me think they can smell that smoke like miles away and they just come to <laughs> it they're over there on the neighbors suffering from lack of habitat and they smell that smoke and here they well, come oh good habitat well, I, I, I heard a deal the other day that a uh, turkey vulture, which all us rednecks around here call them buzzards, can smell like so many hundreds of times more than a dog. And that's why, you know, you throw, throw that deer carcass out. So maybe the turkey can smell uh, the smoke. And if we, which is going to lead us to our next topic, if we're able to bottle that, you know, as an attractant and sell that to hunters, hey, we will be... Uh, will be millionaires because sometimes our hunters fall for for some really uh i hate to say some shady or good marketing or what whatever whatever you would call it but uh sometimes we fall for some stuff that we shouldn't fall for well that's our whole topic for today and we're gonna do this in a little bit of a round table discussion so we've got two guests that we've had on before we got Derek denny and Chuck Mays, how you doing, guys? Doing pretty well. Hopefully everything everything would actually dry up so I can get the burn burning myself. Oh yeah. And also doing the same, doing great. Um had a little setback this year with a foot injury, but we were able to get everything burned in between the rains. And uh it's soggy, muddy, and wet around here today. So hanging well, out Chuck, with you. I I saw a video the other day where your wife was videoing you hobbling up on your tractor. <laughs> yeah, I told her she's she's giving all my secrets away at work. They think I'm hurt, you know. <laughs> but uh, 
my 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 defense on that is once I get in the tractor, I can control my left foot's still good. I can run the clutch with it, and I can run the throttle with my right hand. So there we didn't stop. Wind up getting most everything done uh, that we wanted to do this year, and uh, you just got to make it work because it's Mother Nature's not going to wait on you. Man, that's right. I, I know how that is. We've been struggling trying to get some burns in, trying to get work done. And, you know, we were just, Thomas and I were just talking before we came on to do the podcast here that um, next Wednesday and Thursday looks like it might be some decent burn days. So we're already planning, you know, that's a week out. And of course we have no idea what the humidity is going to be, but it looks like a sunshine in three days after the last rain. So we're your, your favorite weatherman hunter has given me hope that one this rain we're fixing to get over the next several days they were forecasting like six to eight inches or something crazy has dropped back to maybe two or three and two that after that we're going to catch a window of about three to four maybe even five days of no rainfall which will set a record i think they said since uh first of january uh in little rock they've had over 18 inches of rain well I was flipping through channels a while ago and I saw him on there and I saw his lips moving. So I knew he was lying about something. I just changed the channel. <laughs> yeah. Dang lying weathermen. Yes, sir. They'll mess you up every time. Sure enough. Yeah. I went into the wrong profession because I, I think what I should have been a weatherman because I could be wrong half the time and still have a job. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, guys, something that's been a pretty hot topic that we've all talked about amongst ourselves quite a bit, which is uh, the reason for this discussion here today on the podcast, is um, a lot of times, boy, I'm in my office, and uh, I didn't have no heat when I come in here. Now I got it on. It's making some funky noises. But So if I get paused and sidetracked like I did just then, that's probably what's happening here. But uh, but anyway, we... Uh, one of the hot topics that we we keep uh, coming back to is people that manage for deer specifically and some of the crazy things they fall for and some of the things they do that just isn't real beneficial for turkeys. Matter of fact, hurt can hurt turkeys and probably isn't really doing much for their deer if you really want to get honest about it. So, Sitting here with a couple of you guys that are some of the best in the business at managing for turkey, managing for quail, managing for deer, managing timber, managing open lands, and uh, let's talk a little bit about what we what we see and what we hear. And can one of y'all give me an example of something that a a deer hunter might do that's not helping his turkeys? I guess I'll start that off, um, you know, in, in, and I know it varies region to region, but in, in my part of the world, which is North Mississippi, Southwest Tennessee, I don't know very many, very few people that are deer hunters that aren't also turkey hunters. So I, I don't want to set a, you know, set these two groups against each other. Cause I think everybody, at least everybody that I know enjoys both of them. You know, I say every spring, my favorite thing to hunt is turkeys. And then about October, uh, it, deer are my favorite thing. So it just depends on where I'm at, what time of year. But the biggest thing I've noticed is, is the, there's so much misinformation out there about food plots. I'll certainly defer to Derek here in a minute about the forestry side of it. Uh, but, but food plots, there's, you know, you can, you can 
find anything you want to to validate your situation if you look hard enough on social media about food plots that this this buck on the bag blend is going to grow a 200 inch deer if you just follow our instructions and buy enough of it and uh we all know that's not true so so to start it off i'm not a biologist and i'm not a scientist but i can read and, and i've done a lot of research in that and and across the board no matter who you look what reputable outfits you're looking at that do that does these studies whether it's msu deer labs or you know, the land and legacy guys, you can hear it all over the place that food plots, even when made completely available, meaning there's enough to go around all year long for all the deer you have on your place are only going to consist of anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of your deer's diet. And the bulk of it, the rest of it comes from the natural habitat that we guys like Derek provide by getting out the uh, closed canopy forest, providing some early successional browse. So I guess the biggest thing I see food plot wise is these guys find, you know, a half acre opening or a up one acre opening that they can come in there and they disc it from tree line to tree line. You know, the edge feathering has gone, the cover that uh, benefits both deer and turkey. Again, I want to keep these two groups together because in my part of the world they are. You know, if you leave a buffer, whether it's waist high broom sedge or, you know, whatever native warm season grasses, hopefully you've got growing, not, you know, it's good for the deer because again, I, we just told you that science and studies have proven that food plot's not growing a 200 inch deer. If you have one, it's because of everything else in the area. But what studies have also proven is mature bucks don't like to transition from closed canopy forest directly to a low growing food plot. They want, they want some edge feathering. They want some waist high grass. They want some early successional growth in there that they can stand around one and monitor the dose if it's the right time of year. Two, check for, you know, security issues. You know, a mature buck is, is an extremely savvy animal. And if you take that away from him by food plotting from edge to edge, you kind of, it becomes a place that's undesirable for him. And on the other side of that coin with the turkeys, that edge habitat is where they want to nest. You know, your food plot, we'll bring deer out there and, and, you know, you can, you know, that's the reason deer stands their own food plots because people see deer in them. They do work for that purpose. They also feed turkeys. So think about it. If you can provide that edge cover to give the deer a place to do their security assessment, so to speak, before they come out, you're also providing nesting habitat and an easy transition from that nesting habitat into by the time late spring, early summer rolls around and these, these poults are hatching, they can transition into your clover or your cereal grains that are hopefully now maturing and, you know, they can bug and feed and do all the things they want to do with cover right next to them. So I guess my first thing would be just don't food plot edge to edge. Right. And I want to, before we go any further, I want to touch on that. You made me think of a couple of different things and, and I wish I could remember who it was by, but one of the, you know, we like to have a stand in a food plot and be able to see not only the food plot, but way out into the woods in case there might be an old buck slipping through there. But research has shown, studies have shown that if a buck can, can't can stand in the timber and see out into the food plot to check for does, he's 10 times mm -hmm. more likely to enter that food plot during the daytime. So that is huge. And then, like you said, letting those edges grow up with, you know, with what we call an, an open edge feathering. And I think some people might not understand the difference in closed edge and open edge, but a closed edge. You, so if you picture your low growing food plot right next to your timber and you drop trees that stay in the timber, that's a closed edge. But if you'll let trees 
at random fall where they want some out into the food plot, some back into the timber, some parallel with the, the edge of the food plot and with some parallel with that edge, that that's an open edge feathering. And if we can go through there, now we've created something that a predator just can't run down the edge of and sniff out. And we've got a wide buffer that may be 30 to 70 feet wide. And it's not a, you know, with trees laying out in the edge of the food plot and growing up around the trees, you know, something's having to weave in and out and it's giving them a lot more protection. Plus those turkey poults, when they run from predation, they got quick escape cover that they can blast into um, to save themselves. So that, that's a really good one there, Chuck. I like that one. Derek, what do you think? Yeah, and when you get get into it, when you're talking about hard edge or anything else, what I see, you know, everybody, a deer hunter, deer management wants to think about nothing but that food plot. You know, they go in, they'll disc up, spray out some of their best brooding habitat, but not think about anything in the timber. If you can go in, give, you know, open up that timber, open up the closed canopy, you're going to give a, a lot of sunlight going to get to the ground. You're going to create more of that sanctuary feeling for that buck to get into the food plot into your opening. They can't see near as far. They feel more secure, so they'll move through it during daylight hours. But you're also producing a lot of browse. A lot of fawning habitat. You're also doing brood habitat. A lot of great turkey habitat in there as well. That's right. That's right. Uh, Thomas, we skipped a spot you had on you when we were burning the other day. Um, and it was a field that you had planted, what, back in the summer, I guess, and now letting it go fallow all this year for turkeys? That, that, um, yeah, I plant I planted that probably sometime around April, May of last year. Uh I can't remember now, maybe May. I'd have to look back. Um, but yeah, I, I planted it and and just let it go. And there's been turkeys in it. Um you know, and that the really to be honest with you, so far, other than one food plot, that's what I've done with mine. Uh I, I'll plant usually plant in the fall and whether that's wheat oats or clover i just let it bump until next the next fall and a lot of times especially man if i've got a good wheat or a good oat crop man that stuff's waist higher better and and i in most cases i'm drilling mine not in all some i'm broadcasting but in most cases i'm drilling mine so you know they've got Oh, uh, it's probably eight inch spacing. So they've even got little rows that, you know, poults can just run down and not even, not even be getting wet by dew or this or that or the other, um, you know, the, the fawning cover, you know, guys are always worried about, well, we need to go trap coyotes because they're going to eat our fawns. Well, man, if we would think about predator management beyond a steel trap, we would be so much better off. And we could provide them cover that the coyotes wouldn't get them. That's right. 
Uh, whether that's a fawn, whether that's nesting, whether that's w- whatever, you know, we can provide some escape and some hiding and some stuff like that, that, that will reduce, uh, even predation. Um, but yes, I, to, to go back without get chasing rabbits here, I guess, but yeah, I, I do like leaving them and, and man, they look really good too. I mean, if you're other than, you know, right now it's not green, um, you know, it's all Brown cause it's, it's matured, it's done its deal. And, you know, I'll see what, what comes back up in it. And then this fall, I may manipulate it either, you know, with, a with fire or I may, you know, disc it or who knows what I'll do. But, um, I tried to do like these guys, I spent a bunch of money on beans and tried to plant them in the rocks and, uh, prayed for it to rain and nothing went my way. And, uh, I didn't have electric fence to keep my deer out and all that kind of stuff. I hope everybody's dying laughing. I hope somebody spit their coffee out when I said this, cause that's how facetious I'm being, but you know, I mean, I did try one time with the beans and I, I would love to get a good crop of beans, but Lord, I just can't, I, I've yet to be able to make that work in the ground that I've got. Now your ground, you can plant them one year and get three years of growth out of them. I don't know how you do that, Hunter. Well, I got plenty for them to eat in the woods. Right. Well, and before we get far too, Thomas, you, you brought up a good point that I want to make sure we, we touch on again is you were talking about the way you plant yours. It sounded like you drilled your cover crops or I, I call, we use cover crops in our agricultural practices at my farm. Yep. And uh, so we have a no-till drill that also when I'm planting covers, I start planting my fall food plots, which we have very few of because of the cover crops. But so we're, we're drilling on seven and a half inch rows. And it, to make these things work, you got to back up and, and think about why am I doing what I'm doing? Start all the way back with what kind of a seed am I planting and what's it going to look like in May? I, you know, I want the green stuff on the ground in October, November, and December for the deer. But what's it going to look like in April and May as it starts to mature? One, you got to let it mature. We'll, I'll touch on that in a second. But I know ours in hearing about three or four weeks, it's going to be about waist high. It's, it's a six-way blend that has three cereal grains, a clover, a tillage radish, tillage radish and a winter pea in it. But uh, if you just stand, you know, at the top of the field looking down, it looks like a green jungle. But if you get down there and you get in line with those rows and look, it's exactly what you talked about, Thomas. You got cereal grains that are about waist high, but there's tunnels, so to speak, through there that a pulp, uh, you know, because the, the, the clover is only two or three inches high. The, the cereal grains have started to shade them out. And uh, it, it's just, I have seen more. I think I've sent you guys some videos of, of it the last couple of springs. I catch more hens leading poults in and out of that stuff than anywhere else on our farm. And they're transitioning from that. We got a lot of broom sedge on, on our place. And they transition from that area. They come out and the hen stops, looks around once or twice, and off she goes. And all those little ones are right behind her in those clean rows that provide overhead cover for them as well as food. So I see lots of guys, uh, you know, looking at social media, there's, there's a lot of guys out there who are spending a lot of money on food plots. And I've seen a lot of versions of no-till drills. Some of these things that guys are selling as no-till drills. I'm just going to go on and uh, uh, hurt some feelings here maybe, but if you can pull it with a four wheeler, it's probably not a true no-till drill. Uh, now, Having said that, right soil conditions, right soil types, you know, you catch your weather 
windows right, it will do it. I don't want to discount any money anybody spent. But if you got that thing, you've got something that benefits both deer and turkey and, and use it accordingly. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, you know, so so we, we talk about this and, and we're trying to harp on this as much as we can because of the Wild Turkey Science podcast that have come out and, and they have cited four different major research projects where the number one thing lacking across all of these research areas was brood habitat. And the one in Kentucky stated that like less than 3% of the habitat over there is suitable to raise a poult. The Carolinas. In North Carolina said almost non-existent. So yep. we're sitting here right now I'm in the Arkansas Delta and up into the foothills. Thomas is a little bit south and west of some of the areas that I cover. Derek, you're up in central to northern part of Missouri as your home base, and you're all over the state. Yeah. Chuck, you're over there in Tennessee, Mississippi. Do y'all all feel the same way? Do y'all see much brood habitat anywhere you go? No. No, no it, I really do in our part of the world. I was listening to a podcast. Uh, this was last year, and I don't remember the name, but I remember one of the TWRA land biologists was on there, and they uh, asked what the biggest threat was to uh, – it was a deer podcast. It, it was deer, and he said, I'll tell you what – he said, CWD is getting all the attention right now. He says, but I also want to talk about CBD. He said, and I'm not talking about the kind you take when you get sick. He said, I call it chronic bush hogging disease. Yeah. He said, keep those things out of the field. Now, I understand because I have to do it, too. You know, when, when these gum trees, these saplings get to a certain height and if you can't control them with fire, you, you got to go in there and set them back. But you don't have to do it three times a year. And that seems to be very popular in our part of the country, that when it gets knee high or waist high, we, you know, guys just think it's they think it's messy and they feel like they got to go in there and mow it and that's the biggest outside of farming, you know, which is, you know, they're going to plant as far and as much as they can, you know, because they're looking for money and, you know, not really worrying about habitat. So besides farming, I would say people using a bush hog too much is destroying and putting our habitat in jeopardy in, in my part of the world. I've got a neighbor by one of my farms that he has fescue pasture, some of it that he has cattle on, some of it that he just bells for hay. And Right now, it's starting to grow. It's starting to green up, starting to shoot up a little bit. And he's hoping that he can get a good mowing off of it by May, which we know we're going to have turkey nest out there. And then he hopes that he can get another mowing off of it by July. So he even told me last year that he ran over two turkeys nest in a 40-acre block while he was cutting and, and bailing hay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really think that early successional, be it either forest or old field, is extremely lacking anywhere that I have been. Yes. And and that's that's where I was going with this story. I know that a farmer has to cut and bail hay, and you've got to get it when you can get it. And when turkeys are nesting is a prime time that most people are usually cutting cutting hay. 
But if you look at the woods around where he's got these hay fields, there's no place in these woods for a turkey to nest. They have no choice but to get out there in that fescue. But and and everybody says, "Oh man, it's so sad that he's he's running over a turkey nest out in the middle of this fescue field." Well, they wasn't gonna make it anyway. You know, even if we hatch those nests, those poults can't get out of that fescue. They're gonna die before they can get out of it. So they're doomed from the beginning. You know, yeah, they'll die in hyperthermia before they get to the edge where they can get anywhere. That's right. Getting wet, can't regulate body temperature getting tangled up in that mess, snakes and rats and living in it, hawks hunting over the top of it. They're doomed. They're not making it out alive. Yeah. You know, here's, here's the, the, the glimmer of hope I have. Um, the audience listening audience doesn't have the benefit to see each of us, but all of us have facial hair right now. I think Chuck, Chuck last time I seen you, you didn't. So you say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, if you go back to my grandpa's era, era, World War II guys, he never had facial hair. He he went into military, and he was clean shaven. He went to World War II. He was clean shaven. He came out, and he stayed that way the rest of his life. And when they came back from World War II, the farms that they had versus what they saw, like in Europe or whatever, and I'm borrowing this from, from really Ryan Diener's thought process, they came home. And they started manipulating things differently. They, they almost tried to replicate, replicate some of what they saw over there. So things were cleaner, you know, that the, the field edges went away. We started eliminating them. So it was either, it was either for aesthetics or it was for money. You know, we think we can grow a little bit more crop. We can probably get another couple busher bushels. If we'll just plant this right here, if we'll take this fence row out. Everybody talks about fence rows. Well, the benefit of the fence row is, I don't know if you tried to mow against one, but you can't ever mow right up against a fence row. And it always creeps out and creeps out and creeps out and you can work yourself to death on a fence row. But what happens is those old fence rows grew up and it might've been a 60 foot buffer on either side, you know, 30 feet on either side or whatever the fence row and it grew up. And I think culturally, one of the one of the greatest farms around here that that I can think of was built by a World War II veteran, and there's not a blade of grass out of place on that whole farm, and they raise amazing crops. It's an amazing family. They invited me to come out there, and uh, they had a bunch of resident Canadas, and they didn't know how to hunt them, and so I went out there, and I was like, "Where are we going to hide? Even in the ditch, the ditch I couldn't lay down. It was just." mowed like your like your front lawn in the winter time and i said man tell, tell how about next year y'all don't mow this down we'll be able to hide in here better and he said oh grandpa won't have that you know so the only hope i i have is that just like the maybe it's a no shave november or whatever they do uh which is not why any of us have a beard but maybe we change that to uh no mow in may or something to oh, get yeah. people to get a change, you know, that's just a, if you know, we just do something, and and I, and I think that's worth uh, going through again, you know, because because the scenario he laid out, I think we can all identify with a neighbor or a friend or somebody we know, and, and I can speak to this as a landowner. You, I've got to have off that property. Uh, I mean, it's just if I want to keep it, 
you know, there's taxes to pay, bills to pay, you know, all, all the things involved with owning, you know, some acreage. And so the, the guy that says, hey, I got to have that fescue pasture and I need at least three hay cuttings off of it a year. You know, I'd like to get four if, if we get plenty of rain. You can still have that, but get in touch with a guy like Derek and you know, those woods that Hunter mentioned that are just at the edge of the field there. Get in there and reduce the basal area to where you can get some sunlight on the ground and give those give those turkeys a reason not to be in your fescue field. So it's not just a, well, I have cattle and I have to feed them, so I can't do nothing about the turkeys. You can, mm -hmm. and you do it in a place that you're not using for income anyway, you know, and it's right. going to help and it's going to increase your turkey population. And most of the guys I know that run cattle operations or ag operations on their farms, like I'm one of them, I love to hunt. That's the whole reason I have it. The ag is a necessity to keep it. But, uh, yeah, so you just got to look beyond the obvious. So I got to have a fescue pasture to raise my cows, cut hay, you know, all the things. So let's let's ease up 100 yards into that tree line and reduce the basal area and, and get some sunlight on the ground. And those turkeys won't come out in the fescue unless it's a bright, sunny day and they want to go bug out there and get right back into that good early successional cover that, that you've created. Yeah. And, and another thing along those same lines, if you've got maybe an area that is lower producing it's a low pro productivity area it's not giving you the yield maybe it stays too wet or it costs too much to lime and fertilize it convert it convert that back in because i mean if it's not producing anything anyway and you're working yourself to death to try and get something out of it that's never really producing quit quit you know let it let it be something else maybe a pollinator mix or when you talk about grazing of course i'm in the middle of this we just burned off a native grazing area that we've got yesterday, maybe we convert a little small bit of your fescue to native grazing. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it just, there's just other ways to approach it. And I, and I'm hoping that culturally we start seeing the change. You know, one of the things that, uh, that we talked about the other night and, and this was a social media post. One of the guys we were talking about, he said, well, nothing's changed in 30 or 40 years on the area that I hunt. Well, a buddy of ours shared a image of how secession has changed. And we've went from old field to bigger saplings, more woody component, mid-story type stuff, and then grown up. And he said, well, duh, it's just got better because the trees have matured. And we know that turkeys have to have mature trees to roost in well we know that they don't but i think that's a big misconception that a lot of people have and derek if you don't mind could you explain you know old field habitat is is something special that is really often overlooked and that's kind of what we're replicating temporarily by letting some of our food plots or are encouraging deer hunter deer clubs to let some of their food plots go fallow and for people not to bush hog and clear and try to plant every acre of open land we call that old field can you kind of explain what old field is and the benefits of it for turkey and deer well old field you're going to have what just about every deer hunter that plants a food plot doesn't want in their food plot just early successional weeds a lot of these weeds 
whether it be ragweed, broom sedge, any of these, you know, your little bunch grasses, all your little forbs, really and truly, you know, ragweed has a protein content of dang near your soybean that you planted. You're also going to bring a lot of little bugs and everything into that field for your pulse. You're going to have that open ground uh, feel and everything. It's going to get, you know, waist high. Uh, really and truly going back to what Chuck was saying too about when you get into closed canopy forest, when you're talking about it not being a productive, you need to kind of look at it as being a option that you could actually use for monetary. So, you know, I saw a podcast, well, not a podcast, a post the other day saying that basically the same thing you were just saying, Hunter, that the woods was getting better. It was getting mature timber. Well, a turkey isn't a mature timber bird. It's a woodland bird. So you need a lot of that early succession. You know, going back to old field, why can't we just leave part of it into just grow fallow? Man, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, it, it provides fawning cover. It provides deer bedding. It provides escape cover for these poults. And something that is often very, very overlooked, Chuck mentioned a while ago, that no matter what food plot you plant, how much of it you've got, that a deer is only, it's only going to be 15, 20% or so of his annual diet. Chuck, what's the rest of his diet consist of? Woody browse. The About stuff the, growing in that old field. The stuff growing around the food plot. Yep. <laughs> Hopefully that right. you. Yep. And if you'd open up that closed canopy forest, you'll have plethora of it in there you know you don't really know how many forests i stand set foot in i was in one today that all you have on the ground floor is leaves there is no cover there is no woody brows it's just closed canopy forest these old growth forests yes they are needed in some aspect but when you get to talking about some of these slopes you know a west-facing slope or south-facing slope, not only can they be great thermal areas, they can be very thick with, you know, all your bunch grasses, your beneficial forbs, all your woody brows that you'd ever want. These areas, you know, during the wintertime can be, you know, five, six, seven degrees warmer than a north facing slope or in that open field. Deer and turkeys both need that. Absolutely, 100%. And you know, this, this reminds me of a study that Dr. Craig Harper had done and has talked about in a complete closed canopy forest, like what most of us see. I know that's most of what we've got around here, even up into the hills around a hill farm I've got, what Thomas has got. Derek, I'm pretty familiar with a lot of Mark Twain National Forest, Southern Missouri, a lot of the private ground uh, up to about where you are, maybe a little south of there. 
Chuck, I'm fairly familiar with some of that ground, Tennessee, Mississippi, and most of it is closed canopy forest. Well, Dr. Craig Harper had talked about that in a closed canopy forest, the most forage that it can produce is about 50 pounds of woody browse natural forage per acre in closed canopy. Now, if we thin that, we can produce up to 5,000 pounds of forage per acre. So let's break that down to what deer eat. So if a deer's diet, if, if every deer on your landscape is eating seven to 10 pounds of forage each day, that means he, every deer needs 3,000 pounds of forage per year. If you've got closed canopy forest, that means it takes 60 acres to support one deer. Mm -hmm. If you've got a thin forest and you are producing 5,000 pounds of forage per acre in the understory, you can produce, you can handle more than one deer per acre. That's huge. Yeah, and just think of how many turkey poults and turkey nests you'd find in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why we're trying to change people's mindsets on this. And and who wants to describe the average deer hunter? What what he does to get ready for deer season? What what's he oh. doing on his farm? Thomas, roll with it, buddy. So, uh, at least in Arkansas, the majority of our guys are public land or lease land. And if they're a gun hunter, there is a tremendous amount that are lease lands on timber company. And a lot of those uh, timber companies have limited, you know, use. I mean, you can't go in there and TSI, you can't burn, you can't do a lot of these things. And so that's where they, they throw that crutch under their arm real quick about what they're able to do or not able to do. But I can tell you the average deer hunter, the average deer hunter, not average landowner, the average deer hunter in Arkansas tries to make sure he has some ammo. And I mean, at least a week before season, he, he may bore sight his rifle in, if we're lucky, good rednecks. And he is definitely going to swing by the feed store, the gas station, Walmart, somewhere and pick up several bags of corn. <laughs> now it, it didn't use, it wasn't like that 20, 30, 40 years ago, but for some reason it has evolved into, I have to pour corn out on the ground or have a deer feeder in order to shoot deer. Yeah, so some, some of these guys have even advanced from that. And they've got special mineral concoctions that they're mixing together to make mineral licks to put big antlers on their deer. Um, some of them, some of them are even oh, making oh. mock scrapes and hanging ropes off of tree limbs. I uh, got a better one than that for for you. I I've got a guy near me that is selling some kind of liquid in a jug that deworms your deer. Uh huh. He's between me and you. <laughs> yeah, I know that fellow. I know who you're talking about. Yes, sir. You can you can get this stuff, and it's a dewormer for your deer. I've heard of guys mixing up different protein things, uh, using um, products out of the cattle industry to try and 
reduce or eliminate ticks. I mean, I, I've heard of all kinds of stuff. You know how many ticks we eliminated the past two days with that prescribed fire? A bunch. A bunch, buddy. They don't like it. So and to support Thomas, that's, you know, on, on both sides. So as a landowner and a, and a hunter, that, that that's my contribution to this. And a guy who's just been paying attention for a while. Um, there's not one study that I've been, and I, 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 I find something that looks interesting and, and I'll go dive in and research it. And there's not that I could find over the last couple of years, there's not been one independent study, meaning the people doing it are not trying to sell you their product that supports minerals, supplemental minerals and aiding any type of growth, extra growth in your deer. Uh, the same with supplemental feeding outside of high fence areas. Uh, you're feeding, you know, essentially the dominant does in the family groups and a bunch of nest predators when you're doing that stuff. Uh, but what does work, you know, you guys started the podcast talking about burning. We've burned probably 150 acres in the last month and a half at our place. You're reducing the tick load, and that that is real. <laughs> I mean, uh, the the difference in a year that you know, if we're you know, I mentioned the last podcast, uh, we try to burn a third of our property every year so it's burned and each place is seeing fire every three years the difference in ticks when you're turkey hunting in an area you just burned versus one that's waiting it's on year two waiting coming up for fire next year it is tremendous and, and to add to that if guys are worried you know since since the market does show people are interested in increasing antler size getting more protein in their deer's diets and doing things like that Multiple studies out there support done by reputable, you know, Mississippi Deer Labs, places like that, that the 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 forbs and the and the growth that comes behind. In other words, if you do a dormant season burn like what we're doing right now, we're burning right before the spring green up. All of the forbs, all of the new growth you're going to get behind that averages 30 percent, a 30 percent higher protein level than unburned areas. Yes. And our costs nothing but a match, you know, in your time. And, uh, you know, so, so there you go. You can create turkey habitat. You can feed your deer a 30% higher protein in the forbs and the browse that the studies support they eat the most of. Because when we burn, we're not burning soybeans. We're not burning our food plots. We're burning our grassy areas. We're burning our woodlands. And everything that comes up behind that, that first year averages 30% higher protein contents. So there's just no reason in my mind not to do it. So, Maybe maybe one of y'all, let's walk through some practices that bridge the gap between, you know, deer hunters, tunnel vision, looking down that scope at that crosshair, all they can think about is deer. And then you got turkey hunters over here with turkeys on their brain. Let's bridge the gap. What are practices that we can implement that aid both deer, you know, size growth, uh, carrying capacity, fawning turkeys uh fawning nesting recruitment what are those practices that can help us put more on the landscape and sustain them better uh and provide for them well there's a bunch of them and let's all pick one and and uh let's explain it a little bit so who wants to go first derek i'll jump in number one thing i could think of is TSI, you've got, you basically can make as many mineral stumps as you want. That's just by flush cutting a tree, 
And now explain, oh, let me stop you before I lose my train of thought. Explain mineral stumps because I know a guy that was hinge cutting and dumping Lucky Buck on top of that to get a mineral stump. So explain <laughs> what a mineral stump is for those that don't know. All right. Well, that's definitely not a mineral stump. <laughs> mineral stump is you can take that, you know, six, eight inch elm, hackberry, any undesirable tree that you're wanting to get rid of. It can even be a suppressed oak or anything. And flush cutting that tree. The next couple of years, that tree is going to send up a bunch of suckers. Now, that root system of that tree is used to feeding a 40, 50 foot tree. Now it's going into all these little suckers. It's going to have much more mineral content, protein content, everything in those buds that, you know, it's instant browse and it's going to be high quality browse. Absolutely. And on top of that, it's going to produce cover. It's going to produce all the fawning cover that you ever want. It's going to produce those sanctuaries for that buck to cruise through. It's going to produce a lot of nesting cover. That's right. That's right. You're going to, you're not going to be talking about the October lull and the lockdown phase because those bucks are still going to be in those thickets chasing does, uh, whatever. It's going to grow up with the mineral stumps like you talked about, which is just uh, uh, shoots and sprouts coming up off of that stump. So everybody thinks, well, you cut the tree, it's gone. Well, anybody has that's walked through the woods that seen like Thomas talked about on a recent podcast, where now instead of a single trunk, you've got three or four trunks. All, it comes up single and then branches out to three or four. Those are stumps that have been cut years ago and has sprouted and grown up and now you've got mature trees out of it so you've just set it back that's why we refer to it as temporary forest openings because you hadn't lost anything they're coming back unless you spray the stump right so what else we got guys I'll jump in there with, uh, I'm going to pick the easy one, the low-hanging fruit here, That that uh, and I'm going to steal one of Derek's favorite phrases, what's good for the bird is good for the herd. Uh, I mentioned on our last podcast, when I stopped managing for deer, you know, when we first got that farm, I've hunted it for 20-plus years, and we didn't become owners of it until, you know, the last know, shoot, seven years now. But it, it was deer on the brain all the time. I, I'm the guy – Hopefully, I was this guy seven or eight years ago that hopefully we're talking to tonight. It was, dear, 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 what can I do? And I read an article. Uh, well, let me back up. When, when I made the transition, we had turkeys, we had deer, and I started researching both. You know, I mentioned I'm, I'm bad about that. Uh, and, and I figured I saw a lot of things, a lot of overlap there. And the turkeys need habitat, specific types of habitat, way worse than a deer does. You know, I got 140 inch deer. I live in a subdivision with, you know, two and three acre lots here just on the outskirts of a major metropolitan area. And we got 140 inch deer growing in Bermuda grass and crepe myrtles, you know, eating people's boxwoods. They they seem to thrive in it. There, there's fawns every year. We have a rut in our neighborhood. My wife gets irritated because they eat all our flowers, but we don't have turkeys. And there's a reason. And it's because they require a very specific habitat 
uh, ecotype to not not just survive but to thrive. So when I made that transition, it was kind of an aha moment because the deer never dropped off. As a matter of fact, I started picking up deer in places we never used to hunt them because, uh, you know, when, when we let this field grow up or we cut some timber out of this area and, and got some early success, reduced the basal area, we started moving the deer around while we were taking care of the turkeys and I saw a benefit from it. So I guess the biggest thing that's easy for a landowner or a leaseholder where you have permission to do these things. I was reading an article by put out by NDA, the National Deer Association, years ago. It was my first experiment with burning outside my dad and uh, our partner in the farm. They've burned that farm for years because they like to quail hunt. Uh, my personal experience with burning came from reading an article in NDA where they called them bow stand burns. And they would literally, they showed you how to go in with a leaf blower and blow out a 50 square yard area, you know, just a tiny little area, basically an area that you'd shoot a bow in, blow your uh, fire line in and burn that area around your stand because the deer, because, and that's where I learned first started my research process on the protein increase in the, the forage behind the burn, the deer find that because, you know, they, they know what they need. They know what their bodies crave and they're really good at finding it. So it's going to become a preferred area behind that uh, burn. And because I was intimidated by burning and I know a lot of, a lot of people are that, that that's a, you know, if you stand back and look at it, probably the burns you and Hunter, Hunter and Thomas did, uh, yesterday, that's pretty intimidating to a guy who's never dropped a match in a field before. When you see that fire ripping across a broom sedge field on a 10 mile an hour wind, that's, that, that's a lot for a guy to swallow when you're responsible for the outcome of that. That's right. But <laughs> by, by, by starting out in a, in a 50 by 50 area, blowing me a fire line in on a five mile an hour max wind. And I took all day to burn a tiny little area. And then I, you know, I'm an evidence-based guy. I saw the benefits from that. I saw the deer start using it more. I saw the turkeys start preferring it because we got rid of that leaf litter and got some grass growing in this area. And uh, so, so I, I think if there's one tool that I, you made me pick one thing. It certainly wouldn't be food plots and, and it darn sure wouldn't be supplemental feeding. Uh, it would be fire to, to increase, to, to make better habitat for both deer and turkeys at the same time. Great. Great. Yep. I'm, I'm behind y'all 100%. Thomas, you got one? Well, I probably since Chuck picked fire, uh, <laughs> I'll have to pick something else, but, uh, I, I would probably say, go ahead, because a lot of guys are going to do this. You have to do it. It's programmed in your brain. I mean, it, it, you're addicted to it. You can't get beyond it. Go ahead and plant your food plot. And once you're done planting it, or before, let's say you've got your food plot planted, because hopefully most guys, you know, they're done with their deer season. When you get ready to plant your next food plot in that place, come off of the edge 50 yards. Leave, just leave that alone. Let it go fallow. Let, let it be there. And then plant your new food plot this fall and let it go fallow. And um, let it stay that way till next year. You know, or if you've got one now, let, let, it, let it just be. Don't, right. don't go and, and manipulate it. Don't go and try and plant uh, another, another uh, food plot for summer that's probably not going to survive because I know it's raining its fanny off right now. 
but I promise you it's fixing to stop raining and we'll be begging for it to rain again and it won't. So it's just going to, you're just wasting money on seed. Just let it go. And the other thing is start trying to pay attention. You know, last year I had a, um, a pretty good sized food plot. I was getting ready to plant and about half of it had grown up in some really good looking purple top. And that's really not, I mean, it's not deer food, you know, and it's not, <laughs> it nothing, nothing but some cattle will eat it, you know, in it's early state, but you know, it's, but it is cover. And so I left a huge buffer in that food plot because I just could not bring myself to kill it. And I said, I'm going to cut this plot in half and I'm just going to let that be what it is. And I'm going to tell you, it was the best deer season for that food plot as far as seeing deer probably that we've had. They were so much more comfortable that I could ride by on a side to side and see them at the other side of the food plot. And they wouldn't even run off because they still felt like they were hidden from that screen. So I would say, leave your field edges alone. Let your plot go fallow. When you plant next year, come off of the field edge 50 yards or irregular shape or whatever, and, and leave that alone to create that soft edge. And then where you have native things that are growing, even what we always called saw briars, you know, just leave them briars alone, man. The deer will eat the fool out of them. The quail poults can run under them and the hawk can't catch them or the whatever, um, coyotes or whatever my bobcats, whatever's chasing, can't get them and leave those saw briars alone. Right. So I would say leave, leave some of your quit, quit manipulating things in, in that, in the way that man does and manipulate it when and where you manipulate it, manipulate it like nature wants to be manipulated. Yeah. And I, I'll, that I agree off. that that's another good. Go I, ahead. I said, hey, uh, add to add on to what Thomas was talking about, the food plots, how he let some of it go into screening is uh, I had a really smart biologist from, from the state out to the farm a few years ago. And one of the, you know, and I told him to beat me up, tell me what I'm doing wrong. And he essentially had the same conversation we've been having, but something notable that he pointed out that I have seen now three or four years of dramatic results from, he made a very simple assessment that nature doesn't like straight lines. You know, nature left alone, there, there's no straight lines. And, and, and as food plotters, we want to have a, a rectangle, a square, a circle, you know, with clean edges. And he, you know, you're, there's so many benefits from that, that if you'll let some of those field edges go and, and, and like what Derek was saying, or, or I think it might've been you Hunter about closed edge and open edge, you know, fell some of those trees in the woods, let some fall out in the fields and create irregular lines around the food plots that you're going to do in these areas that you're hopefully letting go. Like Thomas said, and you're, you're creating so many, benefits from that one notably you know we've been you know, debating the merits of predator management lately and it seems to be on everybody's mind well you by eliminating straight lines you're making it hard on the predators because now they can't just troll the downwind side of a hundred yard stretch of you know clover they have mm -hmm. to move out of these these different things which which gives the prey species time to react to that so yeah i wanted to bring that up before we got too far is getting rid of straight lines is it's it's basically free and it's incredibly effective 
Uh, absolutely. And that, that kind of goes along with mine. So one of the things that, you know, they do it a lot down in South Georgia, these quail plantations, but doing some, some disking and leaving it fallow in the fall to promote some ragweed growth. Um, you know, that that's huge. That's big for your deer. That's also excellent uh, brood rearing habitat. But one thing that I noticed, and, and I've been trying to think of ways that um, that that guys that don't own land can can do that's not allowed to really manipulate the trees or anything on the property or create old field, um, you know, out of a, a block of timber is to just let, you know, if you've got a four acre food plot, obviously you can't shoot a bow across the four acre food plot. We've learned that we're not feeding our deer. We're not gaining inches of antler per se from a one acre food plot versus a four. But if we've got a four acre food plot, I've been doing a lot of planting one to two acres of that and letting the rest of it go fallow with some grown up edges, some edge feathering, and just kind of letting it grow up uh, to be nesting cover, brood rearing cover, uh, fawning cover, buck bedding, whatever. And I try to do that on the upwind side of the stand location for the food plot that I plan to hunt. So the deer aren't smelling me when I come in. And another thing that I noticed is that anybody that has ever trapped can go into a property and know where to set traps to have the most impact. Most of the time you're going to trap along stream edges, pond edges, road edges, fence rows, um, intersections, any type of an edge that is straight, like Chuck said, predators love to travel. Oftentimes, those are the areas that get the most sunlight and grow up the most. So that's where our turkeys try to bed. That's where deer try to bed. So when we're accessing the property, we're jumping deer. We're flushing turkeys. But most importantly, hens are laying nests there, laying eggs there and building nests, and they're getting predated because Every predator follows those edges. Even hawks have learned to hunt these edges. So one of the things that I have done a lot this year, well, the last two or three years, but even more so this year, is we've done some predator surveys. And that's where we're just like we're trapping, whether we're making a scent post set or a dirt hole set. I'm going into an area that I know I would set traps if I was there trapping and I'm making dirt hole sets. I'm baiting it. I'm putting a camera on it. I'm doing everything except setting a trap and I'm monitoring that spot. Then I've got my brood habitat in areas that are away from these edges and I've done it on purpose. Get it away from a stream edge. It can't flood. Get it away from road edges, intersections. They don't get predated as much. So if you've got a 10-acre block or 15 or 20-acre block of brood rearing habitat, and most of mine is in thin pines. So these, these were plantation-planted pines, loblollies. They had a basal area of 200 or more. They're 30 years old. We went in and done, done a timber cut. We've cut it back to 50 at the most. Most of it's a 30 BA. So we've really thinned out the pines, and now we've got an understory that's grown up. And I'm going to the middle of that. 
and doing the same type of set, making a dirt hole, putting a camera on it, putting lure in it, the same thing that I've done on the edge. On these edges, I'm getting some pictures of some coyotes and some bobcats and an occasional hawk landing and crows landing. But do you know what I'm getting pictures of out in the middle of my brood habitat? Nothing. Nothing's going out there. So if that was a turkey nest, there's nothing coming to it. And it's baited. We're freshening these up every two weeks. You know, Hunter, you, you said something earlier about, you know, bumping that hen that's nested next to the road. Yes. <laughs> so a lot of times we, because of the way we've manipulated habitat, you know, that, that edge of that road has the sunlight. It's got, you know, it's not close canopy for So, and it's got some of that early secessional stuff. It, it's got some really good stuff growing there. But then you walk 10 yards beyond that and you go to close canopy hardwood and there's nothing. So we have forced by either the way we've managed or a lack of management, we forced our prey and our predator to be in the exact same spot. That's right. And, you know, I consider myself to be a pretty good trapper. And I know a lot of guys that are phenomenal trappers have trapped their entire lives. Older men that back in the 80s made a living. They, I know one guy that ran a dozer, owned his own dozer, ran it all year long and made about 20000 He would trap in the winter, make twenty-five or 30000 trapping. That was his living. Um, and I've talked to him and said, why don't we go to the top of this ridge and right in the middle of all this, why don't we set traps? Because we ain't going to catch nothing. We're going to catch them down here by this intersection, by this creek. So if that's where my brood habitat's at, if that's where my turkeys are nesting, they're going to get predated. That's where they're all at. If they're up here, no trapper in his right mind is setting traps up there because they know they're not going to catch anything. Well, and you know, there's another, uh, a lot of times when we do four stand timber stand improvement, I, I think a lot of times people don't grasp the concept and then they use different practices like, and they, they get it all. It's like a mud hole, you know, they just get it all. They get the water all muddy and it's not a clear picture to them anymore. Rather, because like earlier, Derek started talking about, you know, uh, a mineral stump. And then they hear other terms like uh, hinge cutting. And then they, they, you know, think they should hack and squirt this. And then they should do that. And then bedding thickets. I need bedding thickets. You know, I talked to a guy today that was wondering about some bedding thickets. And we get all of that mixed in our mind. Derek, what's the best way to like, clear that up what 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 practices would you implement you know tsi tsi fsi type stuff in your timber stand that's going to going to benefit your wildlife would you would you do a certain percentage you know everybody wants a, a certain simple prescription you know i need to do 10 percent mineral stumps i need to do this they they got some number they want all the time so what what would you suggest First thing I would want them to prioritize. What do they want to accomplish? And what do they want it to look like in the future? First things first, 
if they want to produce mineral stumps or a bedding thicket. I'd forego hack and squirt and come in with a chainsaw. If they're wanting to just prioritize wanting to get sunlight to the ground for a forb response, I would go in hack and squirt. Because then you are killing that tree, you are killing the root system. You're not going to get mineral stumps from that. So really and truly, it's going to be a prioritized thing. What do you want to accomplish with it? Then you can go on to how you're going to do that. Great stuff. Yeah, and I'll add from from a you know just a hunter and a landowner's perspective. Listen to guys like Derek. He's a forester. He does this every day. There, there's social media content out there from guys who are, are doing it. You know, for the right reasons, and it's evidence based. It's science based. Uh, something I've, I've gone, you know, uh, an evolution I've gone through full circle now, and I'm not going to talk bad about any specific brands or products or anything like that. But I will say, be wary of the buck on the bag you know, companies, uh, cause they're, they're in it to make money. I support anybody that supports this industry and the hobbies and the things that I love to do. Uh, so, so I do appreciate them on some level, but you know, when we were talking earlier today, I just went and did just a quick research. One of these companies sells, uh, a, a herbicide specific to their clover. And if you look at it, it's, it's a 12%, uh, it's a chemical that, that, uh, the, the, uh, Measurement is a 12.6% of clothotum, and they're charging you $3.56 per ounce. You can buy 26.4% clothotum from a farm supply store and many online retailers that don't have a deer on the bag, that don't have hunting shows to pay for and sponsorships and advertising to, to supplement. And you can buy this stuff for 59 cents an ounce. The exact same chemical that's twice as strong is one third less than a quarter almost a quarter of the price of what this other company is selling so they they those guys are the loudest ones they have the biggest social media presence they have you know they're advertising in all the magazines we all love to look at uh, but do your homework i'm not saying they're all bad a lot of those guys have pioneered a lot of research that has led us to understand the species we like to hunt better mm -hmm you know, like everything in life, take the good from it and, and, and be wary of, you know, the, the hype, so to speak, do you, do your homework would be my, my biggest thing out of this and, and, and know, you know, spend that, you know, that extra hundred dollars you saved on chemicals, spend it on a, on the chainsaw, you know, go, go buy you one of these little small hand saws where you can girdle trees or you can do some hack and squirt that way. There's, there's resources as a landowner and a guy who, who, really has to watch what I do to make sure I have enough to go around and keep that farm the way I want it. I've had this, that's forced me to do this kind of research and there's a lot of opportunities to do the same good or even better for a quarter of the price. If, if you'll get in there and, and pay attention to what's going on, man, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, way too often we see these people that are spreading lime off the back of a trailer with a shovel and trying to get two tons of lime or a ton of lime per acre across the ground and then they're amending the soil with fertilizer and then you know they're planting this food plot mix and next thing you know you've got five six seven hundred dollars an acre tied up in a in a food plot that has no benefit 
to turkeys and and it's gonna we've talked about gonna do very little for your deer other than maybe give you a hunting opportunity and like thomas mentioned earlier i have had some soybeans that you know i didn't do it on purpose so don't i signed a contract saying i wouldn't hold over seed so don't sue me but it was wet and i couldn't get in there and i had planted a name brand of soybeans that got chest high and the deer ate on them all year and then we shot deer in it uh throughout the fall and winter we shot does in it uh very few bucks used it in the daytime they'd come out at night but we shot does in it during the daytime then all the seed fell <clears throat> out of the pods and it sprouted next spring <clears throat> and we were doing some herbicide application with an airplane and i sent an airplane over because it, it was too muddy to get in there and the airplane sprayed it with glyphosate and killed off everything and i went by there a couple weeks later and was like what the crap the airplane didn't get all this what do i have coming out and then when i got up closer to it i realized it was soybeans and i got a volunteer crop of soybeans that got waist high again and then it done it a third year till finally we had a cold winter and the snow geese landed in the winter and ate it all up but i got three crops off of one five acre block of soybeans but right next to it i had wheat and that's where we picked up all of our shed antlers that's where we, we've got an observation deck that we stand out on and watch ducks in the evenings. And you could look over there and one afternoon there was 32 deer in the field and the next afternoon there was 56 and they were all in the wheat, nothing in the beans. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to plant, you know, first off, don't use every acre of opening that you have to turn into a food plot leave some of it as an old field type setting and leave some edge or all the way around it um, that can serve as a screening and and some cover and bird rearing habitat and whatever and when you do plant a food plot think about planting something that's turkey friendly like some type of a grain um, even a clover that they can bug in um, and then don't don't make sure it's something that you can let go fallow through the spring and summer next year. If you plant a fall food plot of say wheat this year, let's look at letting some of it go fallow and let's put some of it in a rotation so that I've got a fresh food plot here I can hunt over. Then this next one is fallow. Then I've got a fresh food plot over here and then the next one is fallow. And that'll help concentrate your deer for you to be able to shoot your does or whatever you want to hunt. And it provides bedding for your deer, fawning cover, and more importantly, turkey habitat. And yep. to go right off of what you're just saying, number one thing that a deer hunter and a turkey hunter, if you're even both, diversify. 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 You know, one thing, one ahead, thing I've seen, too, is like uh, recently advertised on social media, is guys trying to plant a five-foot strip in rows of pine trees so they can have a green food plot to look at. And and you would be better off with, with allowing, if that had just, let's say, been cut and you're getting uh, some stump sprouts or whatever in there, or maybe just nothing but briars growing up in there, maybe it was a ragweed or, ragweed or goldenrod or something like that came up. You'd be better off with that 
and not have to work and spend money to make it happen. And the other thing, which I feel like we haven't driven home near like I would like to, but we're, we're running out of time is corn that we're pouring out on the ground. And the recent studies that we've, we've all even heard, especially through, uh, you know, this wild Turkey science deal as to what you're actually feeding. You're, you're not even feed. Everybody thinks they're feeding their deer and they're really feeding, you know, coons and Lord knows what else, you know, it's, it's not giving you the impact, but I got a guy, uh, two, two right down the road from me that want you to keep buying the corn because they, they are selling so much of it. It's, it's just unreal. It's just, well, unreal. I think we really have put, you know, pushed that a little bit and not really truly on that topic, but none of us has, have really mentioned feeding. That's right. Have mentioned supplemental feeding. That's right. That's right. And there's a reason for that because we, we want to feed what we can feed our deer through native browse is going to by far outdo what you can do in a feeder. Exactly. Well, Chuck, you know, Chuck brought it up earlier, uh, just touched on supplemental feeding, but you know, Studies have shown that you're not doing anything for your deer herd by supplemental feeding outside of a high fence, like Chuck mentioned, or in areas that don't get any rainfall, like extreme South Texas or New Mexico or something like that. But, um, you know, y'all are right. And, and if you're, if you're feeding corn, you know, some people are feeding a, a high percentage protein pellet. And at least that is a little bit better than corn. If you're feeding corn, there's nothing there for the deer except a little bit of energy in cold wintertime. And, you know, unless you're in the extreme north where it gets super cold, we don't need that here in the south. And feeding deer uh, corn is like going out and and three, three meals a day feeding your kids candy bars. You're throwing candy bars and chocolate ice cream on the counter and telling ki your kids, all right, it's supper time. They're getting the same thing out of it. There's no protein. It's, there's nothing there that's that's really going to benefit the deer. That's and you're exactly. going to attract a lot of predators, and you're going to attract a lot of the neighbor's problems from that. That's right. And do what I did. Prove it to yourself. You know, don't, don't believe us. So nobody puts up a feeder, a supplemental feeder, that doesn't have a, a camera on it these days. So really look at it. Yeah, in, in the grand scheme of things, all those thumbnails on your on your screen there, there's a lot of deer at that feeder. But pick out one particular buck, you know, whichever one that's easy to identify and, and, and chart out how many times he's there a day. Most, a lot of times, at least in my experience, once, maybe twice. Sometimes it's just two or three times a week. I don't care what kind of nutrition you're putting in there. If a deer needs seven to ten pounds of forage a day and he's only visiting your feeder four or five times a week, He's not getting enough to make a difference anyway. And then you have all the negatives that you talked about with feeding nest predators and things like that. And uh, the, the last thing that I can think of, and then I'll shut up here, is uh, I think Derek and I talked about it before we started tonight, is that, you know, these, these food plot companies, the, the buck on the bad guys that I talked about earlier, if you go to their websites, they even have it broke down now. They have spring, summer, and fall forages that, that they want you, because it's their job to sell you seed. I get it, and I'm proud of them. But 
as a landowner, a leaseholder, uh, or just a hunter who's trying to do this thing on his property, spend your dollars where they matter. Because if you go in there and in the fall, you know, the fall food plots, I think are by far the most popular and they're comprised of mostly cereal grains, maybe if some brassicas and different clovers thrown in there. All you guys have mentioned it at some point, let it go that spring. Don't come in there and nuke it with Roundup in mid-April to plant two acres of soybeans that we've already established aren't going to do anything for you. Uh, I believe it was one of the Wild Turkey Science podcasts, but I know I've heard this multiple times. There, there's a particular set of days when a pulp must have the majority, if not exclusively, bugs in its diet to get the nutrition in, to, to get its feathers out, to get itself where it can thermoregulate. And, and we all know it's a race to get those wings where they can get up into a tree and get away from predators. They're, you know, the, the numbers are staggering for the survival rate, the low, how low the survival rate is for poults when they're vulnerable. Those first few days of life when they can't thermoregulate, they can't fly, they're totally dependent on where mom leaves, leaves them or leads them to. And nutrition is the only thing that gets them out of that. So if you leave that fall food plot that you planted for deer and you let that clover start to mature, you let those cereal grains mature, you're creating a perfect bugging habitat to get those turkeys what they need to get them off the ground. And, and that that's critical, critical, critical if we're going to start moving the needle in a positive direction on turkeys. And if we go in there and nuke it and disc it up and plant beans that ain't going to do anything for another 45 days, then we've just totally you know, ruined that particular piece of ground that would have been beneficial to both deer and turkeys for fawn and cover and pole nutrition. Man, that's, that, that's right. And, you know, Thomas, that reminds me of a, of a biologist buddy that you and I have. This We've both learned a lot from him, one of the smartest guys uh, when it comes to some of this stuff that I've ever met. And, you know, we asked him last year, uh, what are you planting in your food plots this year? He said, well, probably nothing. Nobody gave me any seed this year. And you remember that? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I asked him, say, well, what, what do you mean nobody give you any seed? He said, well, I ain't buying food plot seed. I usually get some from, for, for free from somebody. So whatever they happen to give me, I might plant some of it. But I know my food plots aren't doing anything. So I'm not worried about it. And I just done some quick math here. You know, if a man had 15 acres of food plots and it was costing you $300 an acre to put in your food plots, you're looking at about $4,500. Um, you can do, you could hire a crew to do quite a bit of habitat work with $4,500 a year. You can oh, get yeah. a lot of stuff done. You could hack and squirt 20 to 40 acres with $4,500. You could burn it with that. I was going to say, because I bet our rates for TSI, whether it be from light, medium, heavy, range from $150 to $250 an acre. Yep. And I can produce 10 times the food value than that supplemental food plot. That's right. Absolutely. 100%. Well, and then here's another thing. You know, Chuck, uh, what about North Mississippi? Do they still allow supplemental feeding for deer? No. Thankfully, CWD, I, I'm not thankful for CWD at all, but C, the CWD in uh, Tennessee and Mississippi has become quite an issue for us. And that, that's been they, – they take supplemental feeding – very seriously these days it's it's highly illegal and i'm i'm glad for it uh we we stopped it I, we only did it for two years because again evidence-based practices that i saw with the cameras i'm not feeding the deer i want to feed and i'm spending a bunch of money feeding nest predators and the same four does so we stopped it but 
there's the corn thing that Hunter touched on earlier was, was huge in our area. But but if there is any good to ever come out of CWD, it's the fact that the uh, uh, Mississippi Game and Fish, as well as the uh, uh, TWRA in Tennessee, uh, they take it very seriously if they catch somebody uh, supplemental feeding deer. So, no, that's not an issue for us anymore. Yeah, great. Yeah, I think uh, one of our mutual friends was telling me, you know, they couldn't supplemental feed. So, they, you know, they were only doing food plots and you know, timber stand improvement, whatever. But um, in, in Arkansas, you know, we've got CWD, of course, and part, part, in parts of the state. And in those zones, uh, they thought about stopping supplemental feeding altogether. And now they, they basically uh, categorized it and said, you can't supplemental feed, but you can still bait. So baiting is allowed from whatever the dates are, October 1 to February, if I don't know what the dates are, but Anyways, they got a range of, of a few months in there where you can still feed because there was such a pushback from the modern hunter nowadays that, you know, got it, got to feel the feeder. So, yeah, and, and, and some, I, that's, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not a scientist and there's a million conspiracy theories out there about CWD, but just, I, I understand how I get sick if my wife comes home with the flu and I, you know, I wind up with it because I've been sitting next to her or touch the same doorknob. If we know CWD is a deadly disease, we know it's a, and then this is how, you know, how much uh, pressure and influence hunters collectively have that you just, I mean, if you're going to pour deer or food out on the ground and make multiple deer, different deer stick their nose in the same place, that's pretty, you don't have to be a scientist to know that that's increases your probabilities of spreading disease that, that is, you know, passed along through saliva and different things that they have. So yet hunters can provide such an influence. We, we, or state agencies that make those decisions will forego that to let them have what they want. So, uh, you know, I, I keep saying the same thing that they've been saying about the turkeys. If we're going to move the needle on turkeys, it's going to be done through private lands because that's where most of them live. And that's where most of the habitat needs to happen. And, and I'll put that same onus on the deer hunters too. If you want to see the sport that you love continue, which I certainly do, stop doing things that hurt the population the overall health of the herd or the overall health of the sport for temporary gain this season you know don't don't wait on the arkansas game and fish commission or the mississippi uh, department of wildlife to tell you what to do if you know what works and you know it's good for the sport then do it you know the hunters need to take and hunters and landowners and people interested in this hobby need to you know take control into their own hands that's right Absolutely. And guys, I think that is an awesome message to end it on. So we could talk about this all afternoon, but let's wrap her up right here. Guys, I appreciate y'all from coming on for coming on. And uh um uh, everybody, I appreciate y'all for listening. And um the main thing is, you know, we're not making fun of deer hunters. I mean, we're all deer hunters. We all most deer hunters love to turkey hunt as well, but we've got to change some practices if we're going to continue to have turkeys and you're going to see that you benefit your deer more than you thought you would anyway, probably more than what you've been doing. So yep. let's look into making some changes and thank you all for tuning in. We'll catch you all next week on Sawdust and Fire. Thank you all. <laughs>